Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy podcast with me, Alison Perry. On this podcast, I think it's important to talk about the different routes to motherhood. And my guest today, Krina Deman, was forced to take a route that she never imagined that she would have to. When Krina was diagnosed with breast cancer at 33, she was told that the chemotherapy treatment that she needed would affect her chances of having a baby. So she started on a journey of IVF and surrogacy in order to become a mum. With many bumps along the road, including nearly dying of heart failure and COVID restrictions, meaning that she missed the birth of her sons, she is now the mum of four children, a three-year-old and one-year-old triplets. This is a bit of a long episode because there was just so much to talk about with Karina, but I am sure you'll agree it is worth listening to. Hi, Karina. A warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Tell us where you are right now and how has the day been so far for you? Hello. Um, so I am in my house, which is in uh, Crawley, West Sussex. Um, it's, uh, oh, I can't even remember my day. <laughs> That's awful. It's 7.15 <laughs> and I'm like already zoned out. But it's been a busy one. No, it's been um, a full on day, as it always is. Uh, all four children are at home. Are they in bed right now? Have you, have you, has, has bedtime happened successfully? Well, we're in a three down, one to go situation. So yeah, the three little ones are down and um, the Amala is just finishing off bath time and then daddy's going to get her to sleep. Oh, so yeah, lovely. we are, we, this time of night is relatively under control in our house. And it's, uh, yeah, it's when we, we breathe like a sigh of relief, like, okay, we got through that day. Oh, it really does feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? It is just that kind of like, let's just take a breath. We got, we got through another day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what you mean sometimes. I mean, like, I'm like that every day. <laughs> every day. But, you know, to be fair, you have got quite a few children and they're all young. So, you know, you hear about, you know, people who are parents of four children and the ages are spread. And even that can be hectic and busy and a lot going on. But that's intense to have, you know, have four children under three or under four? Under three. Under three. three. She's three. She's three. Four under three. We'll we'll say under three. Yes, that sounds that sounds fine. Oh, my goodness. It's like the the, the question I have in my head is how do you do it? Which 
I feel a bit like it's quite it's quite a lazy question to ask you, but it is the question that everyone wonders. And it's like, how do you do it? And I guess the answer is, I don't know. We just do. We just make it work. We just, we do. I mean, like if people say to me, like, I don't think I can complain about having one child because you've got three, you know, and they're 16 months now. Mm. Um, and, and I always say, look, don't be silly because when I had one 16 month old, like, I was run ragged, you know, I found yeah. that really tough. And then, yeah. so I, yeah, we have three and, um, it's hard, you know, it's not, it, it, it's, it's not, um, a walk in the park by any means, but I think we're much more disciplined. We're much more routined. We're much more structured. And there is almost like very little give when it comes to, you know, structure, routine and, and sort of the, the discipline of the day. Because if you let something go, it's <laughs> just a total, am I allowed to say shit? show you can see shit show I, I honestly feel like that's probably the only word that could describe when something goes wrong in your family so yes <laughs> yeah so um yeah so it, it can go horrendously wrong if you break it so yeah we're, we're really structured with our days and with our time and um i guess sort of the pandemic hasn't helped because we haven't been able to get out and about as much but in some ways i feel a relief for that because i don't feel a pressure to take my kids out so yeah. actually we we are just like this closed unit of the six of us and then you know um, my mother-in-law's an amazing help so the seven of us just sort of soldier on through it and and get through sort of day in day out and it is really like that like you know having had one singleton um you know three years ago in you know a non-pandemic world this has been very different and mm. and i do feel like this sort of maternity has been one clouded by covid but two the fact that you have three babies makes everything you used to do almost impossible you know you can't just say I'm going to meet my friend at the coffee shop because actually you know what my car doesn't fit all of them in at the moment and you know mm. I can't just go for a walk because I can't walk that far because the buggy's so heavy so I literally go around the block and then come back home again so there's so much that's limited mm. um, in what you can do when you've got triplets but but then, you know, there is actually so much joy and we've spent so much time together um, in the past year and a bit that it's I feel really, really honoured that actually it hasn't been muddied by having to meet up with anyone or any of that yeah. mum pressure. Yeah. Um, it's just been the kids and I and my husband and it's, you know, it, whilst it's really intense, it's probably been really, really lovely in a number of ways and really we've been able to bond quite nicely. Um, and so there's, you know... There's always a silver lining, isn't there? There are pros and cons of any situation, aren't there? Um, now, Karina, you have been through an incredible amount to get to this point. You know, heartbreak and setbacks. Um, like I almost don't know where to start. Um, but your route to motherhood hasn't been the standard, I'm doing kind of like air quotes, standard experience um, that so many people have. Um, let's begin with when you were 33 and diagnosed with breast cancer. And I'm guessing that must have blindsided you. You know, you're living your life as you do, age 33. And then this huge health issue crops up out of nowhere. What was that like? Really tough. And, um, you know, I think anyone who goes through cancer will say that it, it's the hardest thing you'll go through, you know, up until that point in your life anyway. Um, and I was, like you said, living a regular life, doing the things that 33-year-olds do. You know, I would go out with my friends and had a good career. And, you know, me and my husband enjoyed lovely holidays. And, yeah, we were, you know, we were living the life of, of, of 
33-year-olds who were enjoying life. And then, you know, um, I found some uh, an inversion on my, on my left nipple and went through a series of tests and, um, and checks and, and stuff like that, which, which you can find out a lot more about um, on my page, but eventually ended up with the diagnosis of um, a grade three, stage three breast cancer in my left breast, which just took the wind out of me. You know, it's, it's something that no one ever wants to hear. And I think I am, I, I, for anyone who doesn't know, I am Indian. So I'm from the South Asian um, continent and, and I, I'm from South Asia, sorry. And I just think it's really tough when you're from a minority um, community because actually we don't talk about cancer at all in, in our in our society. And, you know, I'd never heard of anyone talk openly about cancer. Um, we'd had my, my mum's mum, who I was really close to, had had cancer twice, breast cancer at that twice, but no one ever spoke about it. And it never, it never triggered conversations of self-checking or self-awareness or anything like that. It was just under the carpet, you know, dealt with. Mm. Um, and so there was sort of two things there that I wasn't used to the word cancer because no one had spoken about it. And then, you know, I was young and in my early years of marriage and, you know, in love and looking to have a family and stuff. And it just changes everything in, in an instant. Um, and for me, it was, you know, the biggest change of my life and nothing at all has been the same since. So at, at that point, I mean, obviously you're dealing with, you know, the news and the fact that you're going to have to go through treatment. Um, at what point were you told that the cancer treatment could I mean, were you told that it could affect your fertility or would you, were you told that it would affect your fertility uh, i was told it could so it, it didn't come um it didn't come right at the start either so the, the hope was that i wouldn't have to have chemotherapy so um when they when they'd sort of seen the lump in my breast it looked like it was quite front quite far forward in the breast and um we you know my my surgeon at the time just said look we're hoping that we can take the breast off and then give you radiotherapy and and that will be your treatment plan um and as they sort of did more investigation they found out that the cancer had um traveled into my lymph nodes which which is your lymphatic system around your body so out of the breast tissue into the armpit um and he said you know because of that we will have to give you chemotherapy and Honestly, when I heard that I had to have chemotherapy, I cried more than I heard I have cancer mm. um, because at that point it was, you know, it was almost out of control and out of my hands. And I remember when I was, when I thought I would just, I say just in inverted commas, when I thought it was radiotherapy only that my treatment would be, I kind of thought I could hide it from my friends and my family and my colleagues and I just thought well I can have this radiotherapy for three or four months and no one's going to see what's going on um, and, and I can just go back to work after that and didn't want to tell anyone anything about it and then when they said you have to have chemo I thought well shit you know everyone's going to know because I'm going to lose my hair and I'm going to be off work for a lot longer than I thought I would be off and you know it just comes with so many more consequences when you have chemotherapy added to your treatment plan so um it wasn't something initially so initially I hadn't thought about fertility preservation but when chemo was put on the table and I saw my oncologist for the first time he said to me um I just have to tell you that there's a chance that you might lose your fertility because the treatment does x y and z and I had by this point sort of joined a number of sort of breast cancer support groups online and sort of Facebook groups. And I'd heard about this and, you know, been researching it and 
sort of reading into other people's stories and I, I'd seen that a lot of people had sort of um, urgent IVF, I guess, for fertility preservation before they started chemotherapy. So I went into that appointment sort of ready to hear those words from him and armed with information you know, and and stuff that I wanted to ask him and, and, and speak to him about. And I said to him, look, it's really important that if I live beyond this disease, that I, I find a way to have children. And, you know, I'm an Indian girl. I don't know anyone in my family or community who hasn't had children. It's kind of just a given and we're expected to procreate. And, mm. you know, I don't want to and, – and, 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 you know, to be, Aside from that pressure, I'd always dreamt of being a mum. I was was that sort of person who pushed a buggy around from God knows what age, you know, pretending to be a mum. And, you know, I had lots of younger cousins that we helped um, raise and, you know, and, and watch them grow. And it was definitely, I was, I've always been a maternal person. So to know that if I survived cancer, that could be taken away from me was really heartbreaking. Yeah, I'll bet it was. I mean, that's, I mean, all of that is just so much for you to take in and process. Um so what was the decision-making process like then? For you, you said that, you know, you were told that some people have emergency IVF ahead of treatment. Did you have to delay the treatment in order to have IVF? Or, you know, what were the decisions that you guys had to make at that point? So qu- very quick decision-making um, here. So I was at that same appointment told that my cancer was hormonally sensitive um, and therefore it was feeding purely of estrogen and progesterone in my body. Um, and that made the IVF conversation a little bit harder because um, technically the medication you would have to take to stimulate um, your follicles to, to go through the egg collection process would also feed any rogue cancer cells in your body. So um, my oncologist quoted to me and he said, Karina, my job here is to save your life and not to create a new life. And that hit really, and and I've never forgotten those words because it puts into context how severe and serious your illness is. Mm. But also it just seems so harsh because if you find a way through, you don't want life to you don't want to lose the life you dreamt of. So I'd, um, you know, I said to him, look, I still feel really strongly about having children. He said to me, you know, I can give you a drug that can try to protect your ovaries. um, And you might be able to preserve, you know, as a result, your fertility might be preserved as you get to sort of five years post post chemo and we can see. But, you know, I'd done the calculations and I was like, look, I'm 33 going on 34. If I wait five years, I'm 39 going on 40. You know, having had chemotherapy, what really is the likelihood of having, you know, an egg reserve that would create viable embryos? Um, and so I, you know, I said to him, I'm not really in the headspace where I want to wait five years. I, I need my insurance plan now because I, I, I just wasn't willing to risk anything at this point in time. I said, if there's a way of doing the IVF now, I want to do it. And he said, that's fine. I will, you know, if that's your choice, it's your choice. Um, I'll give you 14 days. And that's exactly what I had, exactly 14 days to walk out of my oncologi- oncologist's room and um, into a fertility clinic, go through sort of this urgent IVF process. And what we got was what we got. And and, and there was never any going back or, or, or second chances. So, so, so we went through that urgent IVF process um, alongside sort of my chemo plan being put in place and a date set for, for that to start. What was that like emotionally for you to have those 14 days where you were, so were you, was, was it almost like a sped up process? Um, were, were, you, were you injecting like more hormones into you 
or how, how, how did it work? I guess, in, you know, it, it's it's strange because I was really naive to IVF because I'd never had fertility issues until I arrived in an IVF clinic. Um, so I don't know if I had more or if the protocol is any different to a standard protocol. I know it's the same for all oncology patients, but they they kind of they don't they don't do that thing where they down regulate you and then re-stimulate you they just go mm. from where you are sort of thing right, yeah. um and and you know it was really hard because it's trying to process the fact that you know am i being foolish trying to create this new life when i don't even know if i'm going to stay alive and that just kept coming back to me again and again and i remember the day of my egg collection the um embryologist called me and she just said to me oh um Queenery, you know, I'm so excited. I want you to let you know that we've collected 13 em- 13 eggs and um, fertilized 12 of them. And it's such a brilliant result. And you should be so proud of yourself. And she was so cheerful. And I remember just putting the phone down thinking, you know, saying thanks, bye. Because I didn't feel like it was anything worth celebrating. I felt like I'd been forced to go through that process because of the cancer. Mm. And I felt like I was potentially very foolish and naive in having made this decision because I might have created this life that I would never live to see. Um, and that, that was something that went round and round in my head, you know, as, as, as we went through the IVF process and, and as I started chemotherapy that, you know, have I just aggravated the cancer? Have I fed the cancer? You know, have I been silly or is this going to be the best thing I've ever done? And, you know, you just don't know the answers at that point in time. And it's such a difficult and emotional journey that you go on. Um, and two of the hardest things, you know, for anyone who's, you know, been through infertility, they'll tell you that IVF is so hard. And anyone who goes through cancer will tell you that that's incredibly hard. And to the, do the two things in parallel, um, it's just mind-blowing. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I went through IVF um, to, um, to have my twins. So that was about four years ago I was going through it. So just listening to you talking about it, I had that exact thought process of I know how stressful it was and how emotionally kind of fraught it was to go through IVF. So to go through that on top of everything else that you're going through, I just, the mind boggles how how you were coping with that. It's just, I think you're just going to survival mode and you've just got to get through it. And, you know, it's not just that. Some of the simplest things become super complex because, um, I had this ridiculous sort of nuance and I know many other sort of um, young women with cancer who go through fertility preservation have that you hear back from your GP or your CCG to say, actually, do you know what? They're not going to fund you right now because you haven't been trying to conceive for the set period of time that you need to try to conceive for before you're eligible to, to have IVF funding. Um, and you hear loads of cancer patients saying, I didn't get funded because I hadn't been trying to have a baby or hadn't, re- you know, said to my GP, I've struggled with fertility. Yeah. But you're sitting there, you know, and I had, I had that and I ended up having to go to my MP and having to go to my CCG and, you know, really fight for this and say, if I wait, you know, to be trying for two or three years it will never be possible because my ovaries would be so damaged and you know so what you know I remember walking into my MP's office with this letter telling him all about my circumstance and I had this sort of weeping mastectomy wound still I was just out as you know not so long out of surgery and I'm trying to tell him that you know what I've just had my breast removed I'm now going to potentially be infertile I'm trying to get through breast cancer and now you're telling me you won't fund me but if I come back in two years you will like it makes no sense. And so no. those little things that we have to keep fighting for just seem so unfair. And it's, 
you know, it's, it's really, um, it's really sad that we find ourselves in that, in that space as, as young women in, in the world of oncology and infertility. And, and I, you know, that's, I think that's why I'm so passionate about it because I got through it and I got funded. And, you know, if I hadn't, one of my children may not have been here today. And that is just, you know, heartbreaking to think of that, that outcome. So, you know, if, if by, by, by coming on here and by talking about my story, I, encourage someone else to actually fight for what's right for them then 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 you know it's worth every every second of 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 the work that we do absolutely absolutely um so you had your um your 12 embryos um and your plan was to use a surrogate wasn't it was that always the plan or did you ever consider not at that point yeah no no not at that point so at that point the plan was that I create these embryos and then um we would potentially look to have a break in my treatment after four years three to four years or at the least five years um so when I first started off it was like let's create these embryos and then one day I might be able to carry them um I hadn't even heard of surrogacy at that point or thought about it right not in great depth anyway so you you were going to freeze the embryos and then hopefully um hopefully yeah have a good prognosis with, with with regards to my breast cancer and then and then um yeah and then try to carry them myself so at what point did that plan change it changed i think i got through the chemotherapy so you know a year i, I got through sort of the really si- intense six months of treatment um and then spent the next sort of six to eight months recovering and then i remember sort of at a one-year check-in with my oncologist or maybe just after a year i said to him you know th- I'm really keen to start a family and you know what do you think the what should we do with with regards to that and he said look I don't think you should be taking a break anything between uh, before five years for for your particular circumstance um you know I had uh, what was quite an aggressive cancer um and like I said hormonally sensitive because I think you know it's in everyone's best interest that you stay on your treatment for at least five years and so then I was thinking okay that'll be like I'll be nearly 40 and if we're lucky you know we'd have a baby at 41 42 but what if we had a second one a bit later and so I started thinking you know of the time frame and then I said to him what you know a a couple of months later I had another check-in and I said look what are the risks of me coming off my medication at this point and he reeled off a load of stats and it really made me think like what do I want in in life you know do I want to have a child and stick around for that child and you know give myself the best chance of never getting cancer again or do I want to get pregnant and do this myself? And and it's a different answer for everyone. It's very individual, that choice. But for me, I was really afraid of getting coming off my meds. I think once I'd got through treatment, I was so, I was just, I just wanted to stay alive. You know, it was, it was like, I didn't want anything to, to come in the way of that. And I knew if I took the break in my treatment, it would risk my cancer coming back. So I, I sort of, after a number of sort of, going back to him and coming back and, and talking about the risks of a recurrence, um, realized that I should, I should, you know, I would probably have to surrender, um, the desire to be pregnant if I wanted to be a mum and give myself the best chance of survival. So it's at that point that I started thinking that surrogacy, um, would be, would be a potential route to parenthood for us. And how do we even begin to find a surrogate? I mean, that feels like, you know, like I was saying to you before we started recording, I, I imagine I imagine that most people who 
who are at the beginning of that journey know nothing about surrogacy. So where do you even start? Nothing. I, I, I had no idea, right? And I was like, hmm, would my friends do it for me? Do I need to ask one of my friends? Like, how do you even start that conversation? And, you know, where do you go with this? And in the end, what did I, I don't even know what happened. Oh no, I do know what happened. <laughs> right. So I Googled it as you do with everything. Right. And, and, and Googled sort of what the options were and, because I'm Indian, um, I had um, heard of people going to do surrogacy in India and some people who were um, not not really in my close circle, but friends of friends had said, you know, they they, they looked at surrogacy in India um, as a route to parenthood. And so I was like, OK, maybe I could do that. And then very quickly sort of started researching this and thought, Again, it was a bit of like, you have to talk to yourself about what you actually want. And I, I thought, you know, do I want to have a child through pregnancy that I'm not a part of and that's, you know, thousands of miles away and there's no real connection to, to the lady carrying your child? Or do I want it to be a bit more personal? And and I definitely wanted to have a relationship of some sort with the woman who carried my child. Um, I was a bit, f- I didn't know, at the time I thought, well, I want to, I didn't want her to be my best friend forever. I didn't want her to be part of my family. Um, I felt a lot of um, insecurity about having a long-term relationship with a surrogate because she was doing something I couldn't. So I thought I want someone I can sort of lean on in terms of the pregnancy and I want to be there for the scans and I want to be there to see my baby grow, but I kind of don't want to be too much in this person's face. It, it's really weird. Um, and I don't even know if I'm making any sense, but it was like, I want to, I want to be close, but I don't want to be close. So I thought, how am I going to do this? And then in, in the end, I just thought like, I just need to get to a point at which I can meet someone who's already done this before. So I put it into Google and I found the agencies that are the most sort of prevalent here in the UK. Um, and looked at w- what it would take to join a lot of those agencies. And um, this is sort of coming back to that chat we had offline that um, some of the agencies were just not taking on new intended parents because they had too many of them on their books. Um, some of the agencies were just so expensive to, to literally get on a list that it, you're costed out of it. Um, and then one agency, which kind of was like, its books were kind of open, um, although they were reaching, they were reaching capacity, um, and ha- they had a relatively low membership fee. Um, I thought, right, let's just, let's just have a research of this particular agency. So, so I, I, I dug around on their website. Um, I saw that they were having a social gathering, like a, like a spring event type thing, and just said to Sati, my husband, that look, do you know what? We're going to have to just go to this thing. Um, and see how it feels. And if we like it, then we join the agency. But if nothing else, we meet people like us who, who are sort of walking the same path as us and we can see if this is the right thing for us to do. And he wasn't actually on board as quickly as I was. Um, he, he thought it, it was a really sort of far-fetched route to parenthood because we'd never heard of it or never experienced it before and he was really hesitant um but I think I knew that this is this was my only way there so I was a lot more forthcoming in terms of research and 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 willingness to put my toe in the water so we went to this um event and I remember driving up and just thinking I hope he likes it I hope he likes it because (laughs) I don't want him to say no because then it puts us back at a like where do we go from here situation and I have to say 
he didn't like it and neither did I. Um, I didn't enjoy the vibe or the feel and I felt really like an outsider in this space and I felt like it was really clicky and I didn't, I, I, I think we were the only people of colour in that room um, and it was really difficult and it, you know, I sat there just wanting to love it but hating the fact that I didn't. Mm. Um, but but I, what I did find there was sort of I heard stories of people saying like, oh, I knew that this was going to be my surrogate and I know that she won't she won't ever want to keep my baby because, you know, that's just what people say. But when you get into these relationships, you realise that there's so much more to it than that. And, and so I was starting to hear these stories of people like me who found people that they trusted. And I thought, well, there must be another way of doing this. So I went back to some of my breast cancer forums and just said, look, I'm really struggling. And, I, you know, surrogacy is, I think, where I want to go. But I, I'm, I'm not feeling comfortable with agency at the moment. And a girl just messaged me um, and randomly said, you know what, I'm a mum through surrogacy. And this is going to sound like the weirdest thing in the world. But there's a thing called independent surrogacy. And you can join these groups they're on Facebook and it's free of charge and it's just going to let you you know understand what this world is about and let you do your research and let you hear the stories of hope that will get you through this and it's not going to cost you a penny so why don't you just do it because you've got nothing to lose and I thought okay this this sounds like really interesting and by that time even though I hadn't liked it I had written my checkout for the membership for the agency um because I thought that was my only route and then this girl messaged me and that check went into a plastic folder um, and to this day, I've still got that check um, <laughs> that's, that, that I never posted off to them. And so I joined the Facebook groups and, and um, introduced myself and just said, look, this is us. This is our circumstance. And it was just the most wonderful thing. Um, you know, that community was so welcoming. The arms were just there to hold you and support you. And it was wonderful. And I think I did still feel like I don't know what I want from this relationship. But I think at that point, I knew I wanted someone who was here in the UK because I wanted to be a part of the pregnancy. Yeah. And was it through that group that you that you eventually found your surrogate? Yeah, it was through that group. And, you know, again, there's a lot of detail here that, that I guess you'll find on our podcast, which is how you work, how you enter this world of independent surrogacy. But um, I eventually found my surrogate there and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't easy. Sort of I met a couple of other people along the way and it didn't work out, but. But I think when I knew and when I, when I met Ina, who was my first surrogate, I think I knew pretty much as soon as I met her that I would want her to carry my child. And what I loved about her was that she had that same view as I did, that she kind of wanted me in her life, but she didn't want me to be her best friend. And she yeah. didn't want you know us to be in each other's pockets. And, you know, she said to me that, you know, people put surrogates on a pedestal, but I want you to know that surrogate can't be a surrogate without a woman who can't carry a pregnancy so we start on a level playing field and you know this isn't about one of us being better than the other and That's you so know, nice. this is about both of us and I think yeah and that really resonated with me so um yeah I just you know so much about Ina I just loved from the from the moment I met her and you know I'm so so grateful that that she felt the same way I guess and she carried our first child for us that's amazing um and also with with IVF and you know I'm guessing that the the kind of second bit of the IVF process um your surrogate must have gone through that as standard um it, that you know that's not always successful so there must have been a moment I'm guessing where you were uh, waiting to find out whether the pregnancy had been, you know, had had taken whether 
whether she was indeed pregnant. What was that like? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah. And that's, again, it's one of these really interesting things. So, um, not everyone will go through sort of a medicated cycle as a part of a surrogacy journey. So if, you know, if your surrogate's never had fertility issues and has carried successful pregnancies before, they might want to have a natural cycle. Um, so they don't want to medicate. Um, but, but for us, I felt like we had this finite number of embryos and I wanted to give it its best shot at sticking. So, you know, I'd, I'd always said to Ina that, I'm, I'm one of those intended parents who wants to go on a medicated cycle because I don't want to waste an embryo because we go with the natural cycle and something's just slightly out, you know, or, or something's not as perfect as it could be had we, had we, had we sort of controlled it a little bit more. And she was always fine with that. But, you know, there was a point where the meds really sort of took their toll on her and, and she had to, have a think about if she wanted to keep going, you know, and, and continue with, with, with all of the hormones that she was pumping into herself. And, you know, thank God she, she did continue with them. And we went through the IVF journey and we went through a transfer and miraculously, um, yeah, we fell pregnant with our first transfer. Amazing. Well, I mean, what was that like when, when you got the news that, that it worked? It was just, it's mind blowing, I think, because we'd had conversations, um, before transfer. And I, you know, we'd said like, Sati was like, I do not want to know until a blood test tells me that someone's pregnant. I don't want to know because I don't want to get my hopes <laughs> up. And, and so I said this to Ina and I was like, look, he doesn't want to know. And actually, do you know what? I'm really crapping myself that, you know, what if we get our hopes up for no reason? And, I'd rather we just know by blood test. And she was like, okay, fine. So I've even got the WhatsApp chats where we said, okay, no peeing on sticks, no peeing on sticks, just wait for day 10 and we'll do a blood test. But, you know, that never was going to happen. And I think <laughs> she was by like two days post-transfer, she was probably peeing on sticks and she'd keep saying to me, I'm in, the, I'm in the bathroom, I'm in the bathroom and send me pictures of her in the bathroom. And I'd be like, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. Um, and then she sort of, I can't remember what day it was, but, you know, she 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 said, she called me and she just said, Karina, I feel like I am pregnant. And I was like, how do you even know that? Like, I don't know what it feels like to be pregnant. So I don't know how you would know that you know, but like, seriously, it's been like two or three days. And she's like, no, I just know. I just know this is going to work. And um, you know, she was so positive. And then she sent me, um, a couple of, a couple of times she sent me picture messages and I just wouldn't open them. And I said to her, look, dude, I'm not opening it. It's too early. I'm not opening these pictures because it could, you know, it could all change. And she was like, I promise you, like, I feel so good right now. Um, and then, um, we were in, uh, Wix one day, Satie and I buying some DIY stuff <laughs> and she'd sent me a picture and I, press download and this was one of the very first times I'd pressed um accept you know download that picture and it was a positive pregnancy test and I was like oh my god oh my god like we're in a DIY <laughs> store and she's telling me like who finds out they're pregnant in a DIY store like, <laughs> that's so true not many people right <laughs> not many <laughs> <laughs> um so like I looked at Satie and he was just looking at me like don't even make eye contact with me he was like I don't want to know I don't want to know what you can see on your phone I don't want to know so he refused to look at what was on my phone um and then I just said to her oh god I you know I, I don't want to believe I don't want to believe this could be happening because I guess the one thing we've missed out up until now is that the year before this, I'd gone through heart failure. So actually it was, we had gone through so much heartache and hardship that I didn't want to believe that something good could come out of the other end of this. Um, and then she said, you know, you need to start believing it. And then the next day, 
she sent me this picture and I've obviously never done this myself, but it was like a clear blue pregnancy test and it said the word pregnant on it. And I was like, oh my God, like these things actually say the word pregnant. Like, <laughs> like I feel like I'm really like, I, I, I feel like someone's going to think, what the hell is she, has she never lived life? But obviously I'd never been pregnant. So I'd never knew what a pregnancy, like a digital pregnancy test looked like. And I was like, oh my God, it says the word. Like it says the actual word. Like so it's definitely reason, like, happening. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> Yeah, because someone's programmed a little thing to say the word. I I will now start to believe that we are pregnant, and then, um, and then what? She followed that up with a video of, of the test, and and then and then that that video said like the word pregnant comes up, and then the number of weeks or days or whatever it was like one to two weeks, and I was like, oh my god, like it even knows that we're like two weeks in, like this is mental, <laughs> like so. Then I felt like I had to believe it more because it was telling me what I needed to believe, right? So um, I was like, gosh, this is mental. And then the next day we were due in clinic anyway. We were at, we were at day 10 and um, we were due in, due in to do our bloods. Um, so, you know, we met up in advance and then we went to the clinic, did the bloods and we said, oh, let's go and have lunch and then we'll go and get the results together afterwards um, to check our HCG levels. And, you know, I think at that lunch we both knew that, that this had worked and we were, we were really happy and it was just so lovely that this – this stranger was now carrying my child and you know we went back and the clinic said to us you know it's looking great and you know your hcg is doing a brilliant job and you know we'll do repeat that tomorrow and you know that you know the number gets higher and higher and 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 you get more and more confident that this might just work and and that's what happened and you know we went through that pregnancy and it was just the most incredible beautiful thing in the whole entire world did you feel like a connection to because you know people talk about you know the, the you know when they're pregnant and obviously it's it's nine months of your your body changing and that kind of tells your brain something's happening here my baby's growing what was it like for you to see that happen with somebody else did you feel a connection with the you know with, with your your child yeah i don't think i did not not it's really I think we probably felt it in a non-physical way that I felt like, you know, this, this little seed of hope that we'd created in the darkest times for us was now flourishing and bringing so much light and hope to us. And so I felt that sort of spiritual connection that, that this, this, this being was going to be wonderful. Um, but in terms of, you know, I've, I talk about this a lot on my page that, that grief of of losing the ability to be pregnant is massive and um i say to anyone who who comes to me you know looking to go on a surrogacy journey that they have to make sure that they they've processed that grief before they let someone else get pregnant with their child because it would be very easy to start resenting the person who's doing everything you wished you could have um, so it would be very easy to say, to, 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 to start to sort of think that, you know, your husband is looking at her in a certain way because she's carrying your baby or, you know, you have to be really secure in your relationship with your partner and your decision to ask for help when it comes to carrying a baby. So, um, I think I was, you know, I was definitely in that place and, you know, I'd, I'd grieved my, my, you know my loss of of pregnancy and I'd grieved my infertility um and so there was a lot of hope when it came to Amala's journey you know and it was the first time round and everything was fresh and new and I you know I think we got caught up a lot in the in the emotions of the the joy of it all um 
and didn't really process how much we lost. But I think as we got further down and definitely after she arrived, I started thinking, you know, we, I missed out on so much. Like I never felt a kick. And actually whenever mm. we met up, she would never kick. And I just mm. feel like I never, like Satin never felt a mala kick in Ina's tummy. I felt it once, but obviously he's never felt a baby kick inside my tummy. And we've never had as a couple that romantic part of your pregnancy where you might have a first this or a first that and a, you know a, a craving of this or, or, yeah. or whatever else we didn't have any of that and I think that's really sad and it's something that I even now you know I'm, I'm, I'm really sad about that um that, that that was taken away from me because of cancer yeah. um but you know you, I don't wish it any different because I have my children who are born in this way um and I, you know I wouldn't change them for the world but it doesn't mean that you know I say it a lot that grief and gratitude can live alongside each other and absolutely yeah and definitely for me that happens you know and it happens all the time and I just have to sometimes I'll see a friend who's pregnant and I'll see them with their partner and you know your your partner sort of has this sort of a subtle and subconscious protective nature of the woman who's carrying his child sort of a little bit more than when they were just a Mr. and Mrs. sort of scenario. And you'd, I just think I never had that, you know, and I never had that feeling of, I see, I hear so many of my male friends just be like, oh my God, she was incredible when their baby, you know, when their babies were born and the way they talk of their wives, like in that, mm. m that moment their child enters the world and that, that immense pride that a husband has for their wife for what they've just done. I think that doesn't happen when you've let someone else carry your child for you. And I, you know, I, I do miss that. And I do wish I'd had that ability to, to, to have that sort of connection with my husband, but but I didn't, and and that's a really sad thing, and you know nothing in the world's ever going to change that. Yeah, no, I completely hear you. Um, so when Amala was born, what did it feel like to have you hold her in your arms for the first time after everything that you'd been through to get to that point? It was just the most perfect moment, Amala's birth. I mean, um, we had moved up to be close to Ina in the two sort of 10 days or so before our due date because we didn't, we, she, Ina lived in Bath and we were down in the south. So we didn't want to miss it by being on the motorway when she went into labour. So we decided that we would go up in advance. Um, we'd rented this cottage and actually it was just the perfect few days before Amala joined us that Ina and her family and Satya and I had had like a, a barbecue in the sun, you know, the day before. And we'd sort of spent some really lovely time together off an evening and really connected as a group of people who were creating this life, you know, and it was so perfect. And then um, we went, uh, Ina went into labor um, and it was a slightly complex um, labor, um, but but you know, in the end, um, she she ended up um, in theatre needing a well potential C section, but they were going to try and force Sep Amala out beforehand. And we'd had these conversations. And in surrogacy, you have agreements before you go on a surrogacy journey. And we'd always, in our agreement, said that if at any point you know um, Ina would need to go into theatre, I would be the person who goes in with her. And you know, we'd gone through this really intense um, labour experience, and and I could see that I wasn't the person she needed. She needed her partner with her at this point you know as much as I was mm. the child's mum she needed support right now yeah. um so so I'd said to her you know you you know you I'm not coming in with you you've got to take him you know it's not it's not for me to come and she was like no we've always agreed this and 
and we you know I just said you've got we've got to do what's right for you right now mm. and um and again that's a really difficult place to be because you know we'd got to this point where where things were getting really um really frantic and I could see on a screen that Amala's heart rate was all over the shop and you know she needed to get out but equally I could see the distress that Ina was in and that she needed to be relieved of her pain and you know the 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 the, the mum comes first in these scenarios but as the person who is the mum but not the person giving birth yeah like in a really difficult place and and sati had had to walk step out of the room because things were just so um frantic and i remember at one point standing in the corner of the room sort of looking at ina and her partner and and he was comforting her and i was just standing there thinking this has all happened because of my inability to carry a pregnancy this woman is in distress because of that her partner is trying to do everything he can to support her because of me and my husband's on the other side of a door because I can't do this for myself and mm. there's a lot of you know there's so much to to go through and to process this isn't just about one woman having another woman's baby it's about the trauma that preceded that and and that's really hard to get you know to get your head around and that that whole sort of incredibly positive experience of having a successful you know pregnancy and this child about to enter the world and alongside sort of the loss triggering and reminding you of everything that happened you know it's just really complicated and and you know from a mental health perspective it's just now that i'm realizing how much of an impact it's had on my on my life for the last however many years yeah, I mean that's just so much, so much, and, and you know, and you mentioned as well that that you'd also gone through heart failure, which we 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 didn't touch upon. But let's talk about that now because it, it, am I right in thinking that it was a side effect from having the chemotherapy? Mm, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so I'd had my chemotherapy in 2013, and then in 2016. I was sort of through the worst of my treatment. I'd had all of my surgery, which was like, I think I'd had about seven seven lots of surgery to sort of correct my breasts and, and whatnot um, by that point. And I was just sort of in a place where we were happy and we were feeling like life was finding its new beginnings. And we went on this holiday to celebrate the end of cancer. And within 24 hours of landing, I struggled to breathe and, you know, thought that, thought that I'd picked up a cold or a bug or something on the plane but it didn't get any better and then I was having to cough to get air into me and then I was starting to feel like I was just you know wanted to vomit all the time and 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 couldn't breathe whatsoever and and this happened over the course of two days and eventually ended up in A&E um after sort of a whole day of testing um I was losing consciousness. Um, a doctor came into the room to, to see me and my husband and sat us down and just said, look, we don't know what's wrong with her. We can't diagnose her, but she's incredibly unwell. Um, she's not able to breathe. Her heart is all over the place. We can't stabilize her. And we think you should say your goodbyes here and now because we don't know how long she's going to survive. And oh my they said to him at that yeah, and they said to him at that point, you know, if she's got anyone from the UK that would want to see her, then I suggest you call them over, um, because we just we, we 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 can't fix this right now, and 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 that's that's what he left us with. But but what happened after that was that a team of cardiologists came into my room, well into my bay, and he just said to me, um, the cardiologist sort of one of them came to me, held my hand, the other one put an ultrasound on my heart, and 
you know, he one of them just sort of bent down and said, Krina, I just want, I know you can't breathe and I know you can't say anything, but I just want you to squeeze my hand if you can remember if your chemotherapy was red in colour. And that was a bit of a like, if you watch Harry Potter and, and he goes into that pensive where he gets memories and sees mm. all the memories of Dumbledore, right? Yeah. That was one of those moments where in my head, I just flashed back and I was living. I, I, it was like I was back on my chemo ward and I'd had a very um, sort of dis- open conversation with my nurse who was sitting next to me about the color of this chemotherapy. And I was like, God, that chemo is really red. Like, why is it in... Why has it got? The, is that why it's got this bag over the top of it? But like, it's got this massive toxic sign on it. Like, well, you know, what is this stuff? And she was just saying, like, it's a really effective chemotherapy, but if it goes wrong, it can cause real issues. So we sit with you while we infuse, whilst we sort of get this into your blood, whilst we get this into your system. The nurse will will always stay with you because it's a really really harsh chemotherapy. So. I just went back to that point in time and I squeezed this guy's hand and at the same time the person who had the ultrasound on my heart obviously saw that my heart was severely damaged um, and someone pressed this buzzer on the back wall of the room and this red light just went off and everyone started shouting and they were like she's in heart failure she's in heart failure and with you know the, the 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 side barriers of my bed were shoved up and an oxygen tank was thrown on and I was just wheeled down a corridor and Sati was running behind me and it was literally something you would see in a movie you know it was the most scary thing I've done in my life um and yeah um that that that's kind of what happened and in in the end we got into um intensive care it was a cardiac specialist a cardiac intensive care unit um and I was told that my heart was functioning at 6%, that it had been damaged by the chemotherapy that I'd been given three years ago, and that they had no idea if it would ever get any better. Um, and, it, you know, it was just a really horrible, horrible situation. Oh, it sounds oh, it sounds incredibly traumatic. And you've talked about how South Asians are more likely to suffer cardiovascular disease after chemo than white people. Um, so was your treatment altered to take that into account? No, and I don't think anyone's is. So I think, you know, I've worked with my cardiologist since this about um, to speaking to oncologists and really assessing the risks of the chemotherapy that's been given to, to different people and maybe personalising it a little bit more. And I know that that all costs money and it's not, you know, it's not going to happen overnight on the NHS but yeah there are different risk factors when it comes to heart failure after chemotherapy and you know genetics are one of them um which is where sort of maybe cultural um or ethnic minority or ethnic ethnicity plays a role um but but there's a whole heap of other things that that can make one person more susceptible to heart failure than someone else and you know, I think with more and more people, you know, one in two now being diagnosed with cancer and therefore more and more people going through chemotherapy, more and more people surviving beyond chemotherapy, there, there's definitely the need to do some more investigative work before we administer these really cardiotoxic chemotherapies to people. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying, and I, I do caveat that actually with, I'm not saying to anyone don't have the chemo that your oncologist recommends because mm. you a have to trust your oncologist and you b have to get through cancer to then ever survive you know to ever fall ill again so if yeah. i hadn't had my chemotherapy there's a chance i would never have been alive to go through heart failure so um when i say this some people think like oh my god i don't want to have chemotherapy and that is definitely not what i'm saying because chemotherapy saved my life without a yeah. doubt yeah um 
So it's just about being informed and doing your research. And much in the same way I went informed to my cancer, my oncology appointment about fertility and fertility preservation. It's about you, the patient, being informed that certain chemotherapies have certain risk factors and having that conversation with your oncologist. Because if I'd been more informed, I maybe would have said to my oncologist, okay, I'm having that chemo, but can you make sure I have um, an echo a, you know, every year like to scan my heart to make sure it's okay? But we never did that. So we got to year three and a really, really bad, bad situation. But had I had routine six monthly scans, we probably would have picked up on it. And I have a lot of friends in, well, I definitely have a couple of friends in the cancer community who've been picked up at a much earlier point of heart failure because they've been scanned. Um, so it's about risk mitigation and it's about doing the things to prevent yourself from getting into these really dire situations and educating yourself and and, and asking the questions as and when you need to it's not about not having the treatment at all yeah um okay so then fast forward um a little bit to the point where you wanted to get pregnant again or you wanted to you know ha- have another child um you had to use an egg donor this time didn't you Mm, we did. I'm actually going to finish off Amala's story because I realised we didn't Oh, sorry. Because I digressed, didn't I? I digressed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I do that a lot. But what happened with Amala's story was, so um, we'd agreed, that, you know, in the end, the midwife said, look, you're not going to argue about who's going into this into theatre. You're both going in. So she went and spoke to the registrar. They let both myself and um, Ina's partner in. So we were there and I was thinking, oh, it would be so lovely if my husband was here. But he was on the other side in the recovery room crying his eyes out. But we'd been in the hospital for about sort of 24 hours now and people were really getting to know us as a, as a unit and, and our journey and they were really on board. And we went into theatre at eight o'clock and um, basically there was a shift change on nurses and the nurses who were in theatre said that they weren't going to leave because they wanted to see this through to the end. And the new nurses on shift were like, no, 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 we want to see the baby come in. Like, you know, we've been here with these guys for the whole day and we're, you know, <laughs> we, not, we don't want to leave. So no one wanted to leave. So we had like double the clinical staff with us but my husband wasn't in the room and um, one of the girls who'd, who'd been amazing sort of in the lead up to this saw him and she without us knowing had sort of snuck off and said to the consultant like dad is actually over there like can we bring him in and the consultant was like hell yeah let's do this get him in and, and you know so without I didn't even realize but his satty sort of left recovery got in scrubs and sat himself next to me and I was just like oh my god this is just perfect this is just perfect so it was sort of satty myself and Ina's partner and then Ina on the bed in theatre and within like minutes Amala came out you know she she came out with forceps and fortunately we didn't have to c-section and she entered this world and it was the most perfect perfect and even now it'll bring tears to my eyes that the four of us who started this journey on a coffee shop in a coffee shop in Reading talking about you know potentially carrying our children our child was just it had it had ended in this you know the four of us seeing that person come into life come to life and watching Amala just you know be lifted up and and they said oh it's a girl and we were just like the most magical thing that could happen had just happened and if ever anyone ever doubts like mankind and the and the kindness that we can hold in our hearts you know I urge you to just follow a surrogacy journey that's that's mm. taken part here in the UK and you know I just sat there thinking I didn't know these people two years ago and and here they are now having given me the greatest gift anyone could give anyone in this world and 
it was just magical. It, it was beautiful. And then, you know, and then um, Amal, Ina was, was then sent, um, was then tidied up and, um, she, she had a bit of time with her partner. We then got the first skin to skin with Amala, uh, which was just magic and, oh, it was just beautiful. And then, and then we made sure that after I'd held her and Sati had held her, Ina held her. And those are, those are memories and photos that hold such a special place in my heart because they're just sort of the happiest days of my life that, that day that Amala came into this world because she was our firstborn, you know, she broke all the, broke all the barriers and she, you know, I don't know, she just, she just brought so much love with her. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, that's that's incredibly special. Just amazing. Yeah, I'm I'm sitting here grinning, just listening to you, listening to you talking about it. Um so yeah, I mean, so that's Amala's story. So then, at some point, then you you guys were obviously like, right, we want to have another baby, um, and yeah, you had to you had to use an egg donor this time around, didn't you? Um, did, did were you always thinking, right, well, surrogacy worked first first time round, so we're gonna we're gonna do the same again? Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't long after Amala was born that we'd had a conversation with Ina about wanting another child. So we had said, um, you know, I'd said to Ina, look, I definitely want more than one. Um, one of the other things that we haven't talked about that happened was that when Amala's embryo was transferred into into Ina, we actually had four or five viable embryos at that time. One was um, the the, the the best quality and that was the one that was transferred but the rest were meant to be frozen for us to have a sibling journey um but it it, it transpired that that didn't happen um be it a communication error or whatever whatever happened happened but our embryos were allowed to perish <clears throat> so we didn't have sort of any backup or any option for a sibling um from that sort of batch of, of 12 embryos that i harvested pre-chemotherapy um and and that in itself put massive pressure on Ina and her pregnancy actually, and it was it was something that definitely sort of a cloud that I, that hung over us for for the whole nine months. But um, we we sort of after after Amala had been born, I'd sort of a few months later was just chatting to Ina and just said, look, we definitely would want a bit, you know, we definitely want a sibling for her, um, but obviously it's going to be a little bit more complicated. And by this point, I'd sort of 
found myself quite embedded in the world of surrogacy and and in the infertility space and I'd been watching and reading stories about people who you know all these alternate routes to motherhood and parenthood and had heard a lot of stories about egg donation and um you know in the surrogacy world actually there are two types of surrogacy so gestational which is where um, an embryo is planted into the surrogate or traditional where you the surrogate actually uses her own egg and 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 then and, and um, gets pregnant with her own egg so I'd seen quite a lot of families created through eggs that weren't that of the mum um, and it was starting to make me realize that actually there was more to more to motherhood than genetics and and I'd, of, I'd often sort of look at Amala and I think do I love you because do you share my genes or do I love you because I'm your mum um, and would always land on the latter so I realised that, you know, we, we decided it would be egg donation that we'd need to go through and did a lot of work and, um, you know, Indian egg donors are almost non-existent here in the UK. Um, so we went on this really, really long journey of finding an egg donor um, who was of Indian origin and who looked like me. And she, we actually worked with an agency who were based in South Africa who had some Indian egg donors and they worked with a clinic in Cyprus. And, you know, we, we found this, clinic and we found this agency and then we found this girl and we all flew to Cyprus created embryos and put them on ice ready for a second journey um yeah and it was going to be surrogacy because I was still on um my my 10-year treatment plan for for uh, my breast cancer so the same thing about not coming off the meds was was an issue um and then also because of my heart failure and this this was actually true of the first pregnancy as well because of my heart failure it was I would never have been able to be pregnant um, because a the the state of my heart and b the medication I was on to support my heart. So so actually, you know, it wasn't only the the cancer and the cancer meds that meant pregnancy wasn't going to happen. It was also the heart failure situation. So um, we knew it would have to be surrogacy again, um, and it was always something that Ina. Um, her partner and myself and Sati had talked about. So we'd met up a couple of times and said, yeah, you know, this is what we want to do. So it was on our plan, and then um, Ina um, got in touch with me one day, and some, you know, she just had a change in her personal circumstance, which meant she couldn't. It wasn't right for her to be pregnant again, and she had to break that news to me, which was really difficult to 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 hear that that you know that your wonderful surrogate can't do it again for you. Um, and I think she was really um, she 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 was cautious in telling me, and she thought that I'd be upset with her, but. I always have and will always say that she never owed me a second journey and she gave me the greatest gift in my life and and when she said she couldn't do it again there was never any sort of animosity or resent or anything like that because she didn't owe it to me and you know I I definitely lived that life of you know you don't expect or people don't owe you anything and and what and what you give get given is a gift and and she'd gifted me Amala so there was there was no ill feeling there but it was very hard to find yourself in that position where you're back in the surrogacy community looking for a new surrogate because it doesn't happen overnight so I was you know I was gutted but I wasn't going to give up and and therefore went on the search for another surrogate um after unmatching with Ina in 2019 I believe that was um so we also at this time had launched our podcast and we were talking about surrogacy quite openly and and had unbeknownst to me 
built up quite a good reputation in the surrogacy community. So when I did our match, I didn't realise, but a lot of my surrogate friends, it's a bit like when you pimp out your best friend to, to, to guys that you quite like because you think they're an <laughs> awesome person. And a lot of my friends in the surrogacy community were saying to a surrogates like, you know, this is a brilliant couple and, you know, anyone who matches with them, we know we've watched the journey and, you know, it's never it's it's a, it, it, it's not going to go wrong because they do their due diligence and, you know, they're, they're, they're really lovely people. So... I didn't really I, I honestly was preparing myself to wait a year before matching again but I matched again well I actually met I met Laura who was my second surrogate within oh, I think it was online we were speaking within three months two months of me unmatching from Amala um from Amala sorry from Ina very quick yeah so and I didn't think it would happen but we were talking sort of within two months of, 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 of Ina and I unmatching and by sort of December of that year, we'd met in person. Um, and then by January, we'd known each other for five months and we were matched again um, and ready to go. And in the February of 2020, 2020 um, we, um, we we were on a plane out of here to Cyprus to, to, to go through our, our next transfer. Well, it was the strangest thing because we'd matched in January and I'd said to her, oh, should we plan for an April transfer? Because, you know, that'll give us time to sort the logistics out of yeah the, that'll give us the time to sort the logistics out of getting to Cyprus the weather will be better so we can actually have a nice little break while we're out there and blah 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 and I was like pitching April to Laura and she was like sounds great but could we possibly go earlier because I don't want to be heavily pregnant over Christmas time and I was like oh that's fair juice yeah okay and then she goes do you think we could do February like I know my cycle like the back of my hand and Laura was a very experienced surrogate and she was like you know, I can do what we what I need to do for my body. If you can do the the admin, then I reckon we could go in Feb. And I was like, I can do admin. Like, you know, I can definitely do that. So she pushed for it and we did it. And we went um, in the middle of February, we got on a plane and we went through an embryo transfer. Um, we transferred two embryos into her. And then, um, yeah, arrived uh, back home the third week in February to a world that was starting to deal with COVID-19 and a pandemic. And we would never have got out to Cyprus in March because of um, COVID and, and borders closing and stuff. So so the fact that Laura pushed me to to make it February is um, is a total blessing. And, and I wouldn't have the family I have if it wasn't for that that sort of one point in time that changed the rest of our lives I guess can you imagine though if, if you'd just been like yeah let's do it in April and then as you were watching the news in March and things were closing you oh it doesn't even bear thinking about yeah and I do actually we were we were actually um we had some very good friends who are um, friends through, I've met through the surrogacy community who were going on a journey at the exact time same time as us and they were due out slightly behind us sort of uh, early March and their journey got disrupted because of the pandemic and and they never got out there and I just think it could have so easily been us but but our 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 story took a totally different turn and yeah we uh we got back and and found out we were pregnant and again um you know it's this I was at I was at my mum's house and uh, Laura and I had been talking and she'd sort of said to me and before like what do you want to see on a pregnancy test do you want to see lines do you want to see the word like what is it oh that's so nice that she's asking you about your experience yeah yeah and I just said I don't know what I want just yet 
but you know it's obviously really early days and obviously I didn't realize she was also peeing on sticks at this point um and I was at my mum's having a cup of tea and we hadn't told anyone we were going to Cyprus for this transfer we we're quite um we like to do these things privately, I guess, Satie and I, and we'll, we'll go through the transfer. And then when we've got something to tell people, we'll tell them. So we'd gone to, you know, we'd gone out and done, Laura and I had gone out and done the transfer and, and I hadn't told anyone I'd been to Cyprus and back. And I was at my mum's house having a cup of tea and Laura's, Laura said, Laura must have sent some pictures and she just said to me on a WhatsApp, oh, I'm just sending some pictures of the trip out to you. So when you're ready, send yours back to me. And I was like, okay, cool. Ignored it for a couple of hours and then <laughs> sat down next to my mum on the sofa with a cup of tea. And I was just scrolling through my phone and downloaded the pictures and was going through them. And the very last picture she sent me was a positive pregnancy test. And I was just like, what is it with me getting these pictures at the most inconvenient of moments? At least you weren't in Wix. <laughs> this is true. I was at my mum's, but I didn't tell my mum because I hadn't even told Satie. So, so I was just like there with my like mouth grinning like a Cheshire cat. Um, and she was probably, you know, she was a bit like, what's, what is on, what is on so interesting on your phone? What are you doing? And I was like, oh no, nothing, mum, don't worry about it. And then, tottled off home and and I do always do this thing and I did it with Amara as well that when I tell Sati that we are pregnant I I make a thing of it so for both pregnancies I created a little box a pregnancy box and would pr I printed out the photo of the pregnancy test and just a little memento or you know with a Marla it was a baby grow I put in there and it had the words on there that said an adventure is about to begin um when it was the, the triplets turn I went home and I got a letter board and I just put big sister um duty begins in November 2020 and you know had Amala holding that when Sati walked home and walked in the door and so you know um I got all of that stuff ready and then he walked in and and I shared the news with him and you know we were just so overjoyed that we were pregnant and we couldn't believe our luck that the second time round we were we were also you know first transfer and, and pregnant yeah um, and it was just, you know, it, that doesn't happen. And, 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 you know, we've never taken that for granted. And we're totally humbled that, that that was our story and that was our outcome. Um, and then as the sort of days and weeks went by, Laura, Laura sending pregnancy test picture after pregnancy test and the, 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 the weeks were reading beyond the weeks that we were in. So, you know, when we were at week two, it was saying you're at week three plus and we were like, oh, that's a bit strange. <laughs> All and those then, extra hormones. <laughs> mm, yeah. And then the lines, the lines were so dark and we would get like, I would get Amala's, you know, pregnancy stick picture at day, day nine and compare it to Laura's and be like, Oh my God, that's really dark. And we knew we'd put two embryos in so we knew that there was a chance that this was this was going to be a twin pregnancy so um you know I said to Satya I think it's twins I mean look at this and then her HCG levels were so high and Laura was Laura had carried twins before but she kept saying she goes doesn't feel like last time this is like, I mean I know these are dark but this is a bit strange it's just different like I'm not sure about this I'm not sure it is twins because I've done twins before I don't know but I don't think she ever thought triplets which she didn't say it out loud anyway um and then um we had this really scary moment at week about four or five where 
Laura called me and she was actually in an ambulance and she was feeling really unwell. And she said, I've been taken to A&E because they think it might be an ectopic pregnancy, but we're just getting it all checked out. And oh, that was awful because Mm. I said to her, like, do you want me to come up there? Do you want me to, do you want me to be with you? And she was like, no, because this is COVID now. COVID was, 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 was prevalent. And I had heart disease and she said, you're not going anywhere. You stay at home and, you know, I will tell you what I need to tell you from over here and, you know, stay safe and this, that and the other. And, and she came home, you know, from that appointment. Um, and they said, look, they're going to have to scan in a couple of weeks time to see what exactly was going on. So we kind of had to sort of bite our fingernails for the next week or so. And then the, the, the Laura's scan eventually came. Um, I think it was about six weeks just before six weeks actually um scan and um I was at home and no actually no sorry I lie I think it was six weeks and she phoned me and you know I'd been in touch with her saying look I hope everything goes well today and we were really sort of thinking this was going to be a horrendous situation where we'd got our hopes up high and then we're going to find out that there's something severely wrong with this pregnancy um so she calls me and she says oh are you sitting down and I was like (laughs) yeah yeah I'm sitting down um and you know and I was preparing to hear the worst at this point in time okay and then she goes just don't swear okay and I said okay what what are you going to tell me like don't swear and she just goes you're having triplets. And I was like, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> she was like, I told you not to swear. And I was like, but there's nothing you can do when someone says that to you, but say fuck, right? So she's <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and she was just like, yeah, you're, you, you, there's three babies in there, which would explain the lines and the hormone levels and everything else. And I was just like, oh my God, oh my God. And I didn't know what to think at the time. Like, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then, oh my God, how am I going to cope? And, you know, so much to think about. And then she ended it with like, you know, you and Sati do need to have a conversation about what you want to do because – on paper, when we had our agreement, we said, you know, twins was fine, but more than twins, we would, we would maybe look to reduce. Like this was academic and before we'd ever thought of, we'd ever be in a situation where we had more than one baby and we said we wouldn't be able to cope with three babies. And so she said, remember the agreement. You need to make your decision on what you want to do. And, and she just said, I just want to make it clear that I don't want to lose any of them you know I'm 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 here to carry triplets if that's what this if that's what this pregnancy is going to be and so I put the phone down and in my heart I knew I would never want to reduce any of them like I was like wow what a twat was I saying on paper that I would get rid of one of them like do you know what I mean they're here and they're mine and I don't I don't want to do anything to any of them and she you know and because she was so willing to carry three there was no question of doubt as to what we would do. So that night when Sati came home from work, I had a little letter board up and I had these three identical teddies lined up and it just said, you know, welcome to the demand party of six. And he like looked at it and you could just see, he said, it read like party of six and then the cogs start turning and he's like, one, two, three. That means there's three more. Are you telling me we've got triplets? And I was a bit like, mm-hmm, yeah, we're having triplets. And he was like, no, you're lying. Did he swear? <laughs> yeah, he did. He he was like, to- he, I think he told me to stop pissing about. And I was like, no, seriously, this is no joking matter. Um, and then he was, and then he was a bit like, I can't believe it. And then I said, look, I just have to, you know, we have to have this conversation and I'm not going to tell you what I want, but I need you to tell me what you want. Are you happy to to have three babies? And he was like, 
bloody hell, of course I am. Like, you know, there's no doubt about it. If there's three in there, we're having three babies. And Dee didn't hesitate for a second. And, you know, so we rang Laura and we just said, look, if, if, if three, if three is what it is, three is what we go with. You know, we are not going to reduce this pregnancy because as intended parents, we want to. We definitely don't. And she goes, I don't want to reduce it as a surrogate. Um, so we're on the same page there. And, and, and from here on in, it's, 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 you know, it's what nature dictates is going to happen is what happens. And, you know, as much as consultants were telling Laura it was high risk and she should reduce, um, you know, we as a team decided that we wouldn't. And we, you know, if at any point Laura's health became an issue, then yes, we would have that conversation. But whilst everything was going well, we would keep all three babies and, and that's what we did. And And what was the pregnancy like? It was so different to Ina and Amala because of COVID. You know, I didn't get to see Laura at all, didn't get to spend time with her. We didn't get to have those lunches where we would sit and touch her tummy or just hang out with each other. It was a very, um, <laughs> it was a very IT based relationship where we would, mm. you would have, you know, video messages or Laura would record the heartbeats for me and send them, but definitely, um, a, a lot less, um, physical in terms of contact because we weren't allowed to be in contact where we unless your name was Boris um yes <laughs> but yeah <laughs> we weren't allowed to get get close to each other so we we didn't and we missed out on so much of that pregnancy and I did have massive fears because these children weren't genetically mine and I hadn't spent any of the pregnancy with them um I definitely was more afraid than I was with Amala about bonding with them and and how this would you know, pan out in terms of the babies when they arrive. And and what did the um what did the pandemic um mean in terms of how different was the birth experience? Were you allowed to be there um when when the, the triplets arrived? Oh, it was heartbreaking, Alison. This bit is just one of the saddest bits of my story. So um we got a call from Laura on a Saturday um, in the early hours of the morning. It was about, I think she called me at 3.45am to say that she'd gone into labour and she was in the ambulance. Um, and we literally, for the first time in my life, we were relatively prepared. So we knew this might happen and we'd, Sati's mum was on speed dial. She, you know, we woke her up, got her over to our house. We Bags were ready. We got in the car. Within 15 minutes, we were on the motorway up to Northampton. Um, and we had had, like, I'd had a conversation with... Um, and this sounds like totally random, but a um, stem cell um, harvesting company, I'd been speaking to them before the boys um, were, were, were born. And I'd said to them that I wanted to harvest stem cells because they were donor conceived children. So, you know, there's less likelihood of a genetic match from both, you know, it, it's a, a, I guess a genetically linked child would have both parents so, yeah. or a sibling in case something went horribly wrong with them. Um, so I thought I just want to harvest their stem cells to give them the best chance in the future of, of, of staying healthy, even if, even if something horrible knocks at their door. So uh, on the way up, I was saying, called this stem cell company and I just said, look, my surrogate's gone into labor. Can you get to Northampton Hospital? And da, 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 this is where we're at. So they were on their way. And then we arrived at Northampton um, and walked into the hospital at, I think it's just before six o'clock in the morning. And um, I said, look, my surrogate has um, come in. She's giving birth to my triplets. And we didn't know if the babies had arrived at this point. So I just said, she's giving birth to our triplets. Um, can we be with her? And they just looked at us and just said, have you been COVID tested? And I said, no, but neither has Laura. It's a spontaneous labor. And they said, we can't let you in if you haven't been COVID tested. Um, and I said, but 
that doesn't make sense because our birth plan, and we'd had a very detailed birth plan to avoid this. Our birth plan says that, 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 that when she goes into labor, I, I will be her birth partner. I will be allowed in the room. These are my children. And she just kept saying, you know, computer says no. And so I just said, um, well, do you know what? I don't want to argue right now, but before, before we go into this, can I just let the phlebotomist in? Cause these, you know, we need to get when the children arrive, we need to harvest the stem cells. And that's quite an urgent thing that we need to do quickly. And she just looked at me like, and she said, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, Oh, I need to want to harvest the stem cells from the umbilical cord or the placenta. And she goes, Oh, the placenta is not available. And I said, Oh, that's fine. Just get it from the umbilical cord then. And then she goes, no, but it's not, it's not possible. The placenta's not here anymore. And I said, what do you mean the placenta's not here anymore? And she just looked at me and then I just looked at her and I just said, if the placenta's not with Laura, where is it? And then she goes, it's been sent to blah, blah, blah. And I said, are you telling me my children have already been born? And she just looked at me and she goes, did you not already know that? And that's how we found out that they were born Aww. in the middle of this argument in the foyer. And then that's I just horrible. sort of sat, yeah, it really was. And Satya and I just started crying and just said, look, please just let us go. Let us be with our children. Like they're born 10 weeks early. Like, please, please let us through. And she was just like, you know, you haven't had a COVID test. You're not coming in. And then she goes and she just turned around and it was like seven o'clock. I said, how long is it going to take to get this test done? And she goes, we're quite busy. Come back to get swabbed at 11. And I said, but it's seven now. And she goes, yeah, come back in, in four hours and we'll swab you. And then it will take eight, six to eight hours for the results to come back. And I'm like, so I won't see them for another 12 hours. And she goes, yeah. And I said, what, what do you suggest we do between now? It was six, six thirty, seven o'clock. What do you, what do you suggest we do between now and 11 o'clock? And she goes, oh, well, why don't you go to McDonald's and get a coffee and I was like would you tell anyone else who's just become a mum to triplets 10 weeks premature to go to McDonald's and get a coffee like and the birth plan is here like you know I do not have I don't have to justify being their mum I am their mum and she just wouldn't listen to us and so we walked away and we ended up getting the COVID swabs done a little bit sooner, but definitely weren't let in any sooner. So we were sent home and we just literally drove back down the motorway. Um, so we drove up at four o'clock and we drove back down at eight o'clock, having not seen our children. And as we left, I just sort of said, are they all okay? Like, can you tell us if they're okay? Like, we don't know anything right now. And she just said, no, I can't tell you anything. And so we didn't even know if all three of them had survived the birth at that oh point. My um, and we were walking out and then a nurse just sort of came over to us and she just said, I just want you to know that your children are all okay and they've been taken to the neonatal unit because whatever anyone says, you need to know that they're your children. So, you know, thank God she came up and she told us that. And then we got in the car and we drove back home knowing nothing more and not being allowed any closer to our children. And then another sort of six hours passed and we got a call from Laura to say your results are back just get in the car you're fine and so we got back in the car and we drove back up the motorway and then we were let you know we were let through and and we went to see Laura first of all and just you know I was heartbroken that she'd had to do that on her own she didn't have a birth partner with her she gave birth to three little little babies from you know via an emergency c-section with no one there by her side um because I don't know, someone decided to keep us apart. And so, you know, I just sort of, we had a conversation on how the birth had been and what had happened. And 
And then sort of I got this beautiful video where I just set the set the phone to record and I just said to her, just tell me, tell me the sex of them. And she was just like, are you sure you don't want to go up and see for yourself? And we just said, no, well, I, you know, I said, I want you to tell me. And so she just said, you know, you've got three boys and we just both broke down into tears because mm. it wasn't. I don't know. We just didn't. Uh, we definitely didn't expect it. We 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 thought we were going to have sort of twin identical twin boys plus a girl, and she thought it was identical twin girls plus a boy. Um, and it was just you know that we had had to fight so much to have that special moment between Laura and and ourselves, and we shouldn't have had to you know at all because we later found out that 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 every other father partner was allowed in without a covid test to be with their oh, with their other no half but at, at the point at which their children were born no and no one was sent away whilst pending results for a covid test and <sighs> so we you know we were kept apart for for 12 hours from our children and from our surrogate because of the pandemic and because one person decided that that we didn't have the right to go through a set of double doors when someone else did and and that, you know, you never get those first 12 hours back. And, you know, now I read sort of the notes of, of, of how the boys struggled in those first sort of moments that they came into, into, to being in the outside world. And it, you know, I just, it, my blood turns cold when I think, you know, what if one of them didn't make it? Yeah. And one of them very nearly didn't. And, you know, how would that person who was going to send me to McDonald's feel if one of my children didn't make it and I was sent away because I didn't have a COVID test? When when I get it, if that's the rule, you're going to apply to everyone. But that wasn't the rule that was applied to everyone. It was almost like because it was a surrogacy pregnancy, there was, an, you know, an excuse not to allow us in when, when there really shouldn't have been. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I, I get it, obviously, at that point, And even today, hospitals are under are a huge amount of pressure and strain and the staff are, you know, a lot of them are on their knees with, with tiredness. But from your point of view, that is just incredibly, you know, just such a just such a sad experience, isn't it? Yeah, really sad. And, you know, it's something that will will un- unfortunately can never be undone but but no. i guess you know the, the 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 blessing is that the boys did make it and you know we went through the neonatal experience with them which was which was difficult and you know the one thing that is often forgotten is that they give the the the, the, the babies arrive in the town that your surrogate is living in not in the town that you live in yourself so we you know we were doing the commute. We we started doing that initially, and then we um, realised that it was really unsustainable to leave Amala at home in in Crawley whilst we took a two hour drive to Northampton and back. You know, every single day, and often it was longer than two hours because of traffic. And you know, we weren't able to be with the boys enough, and we weren't able to be with her enough. So eventually, sort of by the end of week one, we rented an apartment in Northampton and just moved all of us up there and. You know, we set up camp there for a few weeks and that allowed us to be on, you know, beck and call for the boys and to have quality time with Amala as well. So, um, so we did that and we, we uprooted our entire life for, for, for three or four weeks. And then when the boys were strong enough, um, to transfer hospitals, they were transferred to our local hospital and we brought everything back home again and started to, to prepare our house for, for the arrival of three tiny babies. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, even that in itself, you know, I'm guessing you were buying three cots and a triple buggy and all the rest of it. I mean, just so much, so much to prepare. Oh, my goodness. Um, So how do you feel now, like when you look at your four children, knowing what you've been through? I mean... 
just like I said at the start I don't know where to begin because there was just you, you've been through so much and hopefully now you know everyone listening <laughs> understands why I said that um, but knowing what you've been through to get them here how do you feel when you when you look at them now today? I just I'm so proud of us as a family you know not just not just me and my husband for the journey we went on but for the children for for choosing us and I you know I genuinely believe that that they that that babies and you know souls choose their families that they're going to join and and they decided to to make us a family and it's just incredible and you know there are so there there are so many things to to grieve and to to fear but there's so much more to be grateful for and and to have love for and you know I'm not saying that every day is um is 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 sort of rainbows and unicorns because it definitely isn't you know we're raising three kids and we're raising kids in a really that have been brought into the world from 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 a place of trauma um so there's always triggers and there's always things that that sort of that knock you off edge and you know we we were talking offline about the fact that I lost my mum six weeks ago and you know I think the hardest thing is that she didn't get to see her grandchildren grow up um, mm. when that was, you know, one of her biggest wishes. And she always said to me, like, I can't wait to take a Marla, you know, drive a Marla to the school, do the school run and do the pick up and the drop off. And, you know, I'm going to be the granny who picks her up at the gates and stuff. And that was always her dream. And to to have lost your mum when you've got these babies that you've fought so hard for is really difficult. Um, but equally, you know, I have to be grateful for the fact that she knew they existed and that, that she knew that my family was complete before she left um she left my side so it's yeah. a really um emotive and difficult place right now i think it's um it's you know we're i'm living in a in from a place of grief more than anything else um and so sometimes the children bring out triggers um for for for, for other things that i've been through so um having lost my mum i think it, in anyone who loses someone close to them it realizes it it reminds you of your own vulnerabilities and so yeah. i'm often sort of triggered about you know the illnesses that i carry or the the the, the you know the heartache we went through to bring them here um but you know, I know that's not going to last forever, and and actually, I love my children so much, and I'm so proud of them. And you know, yeah, I, I said earlier about how we went on this incredible journey to find an Indian donor, but the reality is that my children came out white with blue eyes, which is just mad because you know our, our donor egg came from an Indian girl with brown hair, brown black hair, brown eyes, brown skin. My husband has got you know typical Indian guy, brown skin, black hair. Um, yet the triplets are, are, are white skinned. They've got the most beautiful blue eyes. Um, and, and, and don't look anything like any of us. And, you know, <laughs> it does sometimes that reminds you that they're donor conceived, but, but sometimes that just reminds you that they're little miracles and life is unpredictable, but, but life is beautiful. Um, and I definitely sort of live generally in the, in the world of gratitude and, and joy and love and, you know, I just hope my children are a reflection of that. And, you know, I, you know, the reason we do this and I do a lot of this is that I want one day when they grow up, I want them to know that the journey that their mum and dad went on and I want them to embrace that sort of resilience and tenacity and take that forward in their own lives and, and go and achieve big things and, and, you know, and fulfill their hearts. And, and that's all I ever want them to be is totally happy and, and free, you know. That's so wonderful. Karina, a huge thank you for being my guest today. I feel like it has just been the biggest privilege to listen to you 
talk about what you've been through in your life and your experiences. So thank you so much. Um, where can we find you online? You know, you've got your podcast, you've got your uh, your blog, your social media. Tell us where we can hear more from you. Um, yes. Yeah, so I guess the most obvious place is my Instagram. So my handle is just at Karina Deman. Um, I do have a website, but don't shoot me because it hasn't been updated in like <laughs> years. Um, but that is www.karinademand.com. And our podcast is called The Intended Parent. Um, and it's available on all major podcasting platforms. And I feel like you've definitely got a book in you, Karina, at least one, if not several. Um, and I'm literally, I've been like stalking you and like, really, I look like, I've got your book and I'm just like... I need to like get my butt in gear because you know Alison's done it. I need to. I need to. Do it. <laughs> well, I feel like you're quite well placed since I wrote OMG, it's twins. I think you should write fuck, it's triplets. <laughs> no, I think so. Yeah, definitely. We will. Um, yeah, we will uh, watch this space. There's definitely a book in the making. You know, it's definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not even joking. It's it's definitely there and I guess when the time is right and, and when there's a bit of headspace away from the 16 month olds um, it will definitely get written maybe in about 17 years time <laughs> <laughs> no let's do it sooner yeah Karina thank you so much thank you so much for chatting to me today thank you Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.